Welcome to the world of fiction, where we're lying, but that's okay. One prepared host, two neurodivergent nerds, two authors dig deeper into the lies that expose truths. If you're a fan of fiction with a curious mind, tune in each week for discussions on speculative worlds, fandom, the industry, and creating. So today we're going to talk about the film adaptation of The Wheel of Time. Very controversial. Yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of different opinions out there on this one. And we're going to be talking about them. So there's always a lot of mixed reactions whenever something is adapted from book to film particularly with something like Wheel of Time that has such a hardcore fan base to begin with. For example, Lord of the Rings, when it first came out, The Fellowship, there was a lot of people who were upset about changes that were made. But with yeah. time, it's become one of the most beloved fantasy adaptations that's ever been created. So who knows, maybe Wheel of Time in the future, people will be more yeah. uh, flexible and patient with it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but before we get into the nitty gritty, I think it's good to talk about adaptations in general and how you kind of have a spectrum of how accurate adaptations are to the original source material. You can have something that's, as much as possible, like shot for shot, um, mm -hmm. accurate to the book. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, have something that's more of a reimagining using the original source material as an inspiration point rather than the official um, authority on the story that you're telling. And the reality is, is that an adaptation is a new piece of art. It's not a continuation of the art that was already created. And that art belongs to the showrunners and the writers who are creating that film. So we'll talk about Rafe um, Judkins a little bit today and um, some of his vision and artistic decisions that maybe not everyone will agree with, but ultimately it's his art. Yeah. Um, I think of like Stardust when I think about this kind of a scale, Stardust was really loved and really well accepted by fans and Neil Gaiman loved it as well. But the movie is a completely different animal than the book it strays okay. quite a lot from the book. Um, so that's one example I can, I think of right away where it's very clear that the film adaptation is a different piece of art. And that doesn't mean that it takes away from the original at all. So Wheel of Time, I think for starters, we just have to accept the fact that this is not an easy thing to adapt. No, it's huge. It's, it's huge. One of the largest, if not the largest um, epic fantasy novel series ever written. I mean, it's just, it's insanely huge. Um, yeah. And yeah, there's so much material to cover. And, you know, it, it feels like, so I started reading these in 94. So mm -hmm. I've, I've been reading them a little while now. Um, it felt, and it still feels like to me, like the first book is a standalone book. The second mm -hmm. is a standalone book that builds on the first. And then mm -hmm. it was the third where he was like, okay, I'm going to have time to tell the story. Yeah. Yeah. Brandon Sanderson actually um, divides the series into different eras, mm -hmm. four different eras. The okay. first that three being like a chase narrative mm -hmm. um, and then four through six being this political intrigue epic mm -hmm. and then seven through 10 um, Brandon says he calls this Jordan's I got bored of it period 
where he takes other characters and goes deep into completely other stories that are happening yeah and then wraps it up in 11 and then brandon's additions yeah. um back to that political intrigue main plot line yeah um, which is an important thing to note because the political intrigue is the heart and soul of this story. And so it makes sense for this film adaptation where you can't spend three seasons doing a setup for the real story. Um, so the fact that they're taking things from future books and, and re, um, redoing that chronologically and, and condensing things makes a lot of sense because they have to bring in that political intrigue much earlier on in order for an audience to want to keep with yeah. it and keep watching. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. I, I think the there were people for immediately who were angry about the casting. Like, oh my gosh, how in the world can you have black people in my epic fantasy? And... <sighs> You know, it, one of the things that it always seemed like, it seemed like Jim, uh, for those who don't know, Robert Jordan's real name is James Rigney, often known as Jim. I will sometimes refer to him as RJ or Jim or, or whatever. It's it's kind of weird. Um, Jim wrote a Southern epic fantasy. Um, and so there is... Maybe not Southern Gothic. There's definitely a Southern flair or flavor to it that a lot of people mm. wouldn't necessarily get. The Two Rivers is very much the Carolinas. Um, oh, and interesting. So, and yeah, and that and makes so sense. It, it really is like, why wouldn't there be? You know, I, I hate to be right. the one to point this out, but in any major, even any modest city in the United States, you're going to have black people. You're going to have people who are not white or black. Yeah. Get over it. And the whole idea of the Wheel of Time isn't that it's a completely separate universe from the one we live yeah. in, but yeah. it's, a, it's a cycle that we are a part yeah. of and yeah. we're in their past, but they're playing out the Arthurian legends from our past, yeah. but in a future cycle of yeah. that time period. Yeah. So why wouldn't there be diversity? There's diversity yeah. in our real worlds. You know, and, and people will look at the covers and say, see? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, an artist, a, a cover artist typically gets a little blurb and then they have mm -hmm. to figure it out from there. And, um, and cover art is like exclusively a marketing yeah. tool. It's yeah. not necessarily reflective of the book which we've talked yeah. about briefly in our writing group before about how it can be frustrating sometimes when the book doesn't seem to connect much with the material but yeah it it's marketing it's an advertisement yeah. on the cover yeah yeah completely um it's uh it's 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 pretty amazing sometimes how people will look at this really random thing and say oh well see this and, you know, there are um, when Daniel Hetty, uh, I believe that's his name, was announced as as Lan. Um, mm -hmm. People, people whose primary language was not English, who who read this in a translation, read stony face to mean craggy and old. And it's like, no, that, mm. that's not actually what that means. You know, that means very blank face, very controlled, very, you can't read anything from him. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, ha having that conversation with some Wheel of Time fans uh, was, was kind of interesting because they were like, oh, I had no idea. Like, yeah, yeah, no, I get it. And even the English versions, not everything translates the way an author wants it to. There's yeah. an interview with Robert Jordan at the end of um, the audiobooks, mm -hmm. the original audiobooks, not the one that was recently recorded mm -hmm. um, by uh, Rosamand Pike. Um, and he talks about how 
he likes he doesn't read his books after they're published but he does listen to them because when he listens to the voice actor he gets a different perspective on how his words were interpreted and that gives him information when he's writing the next one about things that he maybe needs to clarify because it wasn't received the way that he had intended it to be received so even in the english versions there can yeah. be things that are misunderstood by by the readers and the fans. Yeah. I think it's a moot point, even like discussing what Robert Jordan would have wanted with the film adaptation. Yeah, because of that, it's it's impossible to know. Not even yeah. his wife knew, and yeah. she was his editor. Yeah, yeah, Harriet. Uh, I, I think out of probably every any living person, Harriet had as good an idea as any. But yeah. You know, even then, there's still, you know, there's definitely room for interpretation. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's uh, it, it's kind of interesting. You know, I, I got to meet him one time and I was asking him this question. So Wheel of Time nerds really kind of pay attention to this. It turns out the Aes Sedai, who are not allowed to make power rot weapons, can mm -hmm. possibly make power rot armor. Um, oh. And so, you know... Uh, weapons that are power rot are nigh indestructible. There's only a few things that could really damage them. So power rot armor could be also. Um, so, you know, you wouldn't want to do everything out of it. You, you wouldn't want to do the strappings or things like that out of it somehow. Mm -hmm. But, you know, something like a, a good shirt of mail uh, with all the links, um, the plates in a plate mail armor uh, set, you wouldn't even want to you you would want the rivets and stuff to be regular so you could take it apart and put it back together yeah. when the strapping starts to wear out but yeah it, it's it's kind of interesting and and i think i kind of shocked him with that question um mm -hmm. and i gave him an out i was like is it going to depend on what the um the isodai the individual isodai feels about it because to some people armor because it extends the life of the, the person wearing it is a weapon. It's a weapon. Mm. Weapons and armor are considered munitions or, or something along those right. lines. And others are like, no, it's totally protective. So it really comes down to their, their feeling. So even Jim or even Robert Jordan um, had different feelings about that. I, I think he'd never thought about it, to be honest with you. And I just gave him an out as part of a conversation yeah so, um but yeah you know at the time i was really into armor building and and stuff so it was it was a really big kind of something that i would think about that most people wouldn't i think yeah so yeah even i i think he, he immediately knew there was interpretation there's room for interpretation in his work absolutely i mean as an author it it's kind of unwise to assume that there won't be especially yeah. with fantasy and world yeah. building where the fans really go deep into these wow. worlds and yeah. they ask questions that as an author you well, didn't yeah. even think could be yeah. a question i i think that's one of the reasons he always used the refrain read and find out because he didn't want to paint mm -hmm. himself into a corner yeah um, he, he used that a lot so yeah, it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of interesting to me and, you know, keep in mind, we have, we have examples of interpretation going crazy in the real world outside of that. Like the guys who wrote the constitution argued about what it meant a year and a half later. Like there were, there were yeah. vicious arguments already from the guys who wrote the darn thing. So, mm -hmm. you and know, that's when it was a contemporary document. Yeah. Yeah, Not a hundred exactly. years later where we're talking about how does this translate with the yeah. passage of time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so when we look at how do we interpret this, you know, as you said, interpretations change over time and then they definitely change going from one thing to another, or, you mm. know, from one, one sort of thing to another sort of thing. So in my meager preparation time for this, um, I, I found a couple of quotes that were interesting. And one of them is a Stephen King quote where he's like, look, movies and books or film adaptations in any way is kind of how I'm interpreting that. And mm -hmm. books are apples and oranges. They're different yeah. things and they taste great on their own anyway. Yeah. 
they also have different audiences, yeah. which is an important thing to consider yeah. because even though you're the hardcore fan and you think this is for me, this yeah. is for the hardcore fans. The reality is, is if it only appealed to the hardcore fans, the show would fail. There wouldn't yeah. be enough, enough yeah. viewers as much as you think that the hardcore fans are pervasive enough. Um, it's just not for film yeah. and for film, you need a much bigger audience. Yeah. So they have to appeal to the people who aren't hardcore fans who have no intention of ever reading the books yeah. and who just want to enjoy a fantasy TV series. And a lot of those people in that audience are going to be the game of throne fans and fans of the grim dark movement. Mm -hmm. And so we see some of those changes made to our main characters from the two rivers who have been aged up yeah. and then given much darker backstories and that's probably to appeal to this completely new audience that Amazon wants. I also think the aging up was a really specific practical purpose mm -hmm. in that, you know, if you cast somebody who's 14, 14 to 19, they're going to physically change a lot. Yeah. So, you know, and even though the, the, book series is only supposed to take place over the course of like two or three years, two years, I think, or something, which just feels ridiculously short, even to me. I know. You know, Rafe is hoping to get a good six or seven years out of it, I think, six or seven seasons out of it. And yeah. so, you know, you're, when you look at film schedule and everything, those 14-year-olds are going to look ridiculously different, even by the time the second season comes around. So mm -hmm. it doesn't make sense to have them younger. Um, and then that has a couple of spill on effects, I think. Like mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, by the time somebody's 18 or 19, they're probably playing around with sex. So, yeah. you know, a couple of those characters actually having been intimate makes a lot of sense. One of them being Mary yeah. makes a lot of sense at that point. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. Um and a, before I get into this, a little bit of a disclaimer that I I watched intentionally blank Brandon Sanderson's podcast mm -hmm. um, episodes on his involvement with the Wheel of Time mm -hmm. in preparation for, for our discussion. And I'll be using a lot of the things he says as a jumping off point. Okay. You know, us coming in from the perspective of a fan of the series from the very beginning yeah. of the series. and a new fan to the series because I was born in 1994. Yeah, shut up. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Hold on. I've got to chase some kids off my lawn. <laughs> it's going to take me a few minutes to get down the stairs though. So, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, but yeah, so we're coming in from a pretty different perspective than Brandon being, you know, a collaborator yeah. of, of Robert Jordan's yeah. um, with the final books. Well, and they uh, were like he they had the rough outline and uh, Robert Jordan had had written specific passages and everything like he, right. there were scenes that he wrote entirely himself. Um, mm -hmm. But I mean, we have a lot of it because one night. Uh, he was during a family get together. He like went, I don't know how it came up, but um, it, he started telling the story of what was going to happen in kind of broad strokes. And so um, my understanding is Maria, who is one of his um, editorial assistants, who is still an assistant, I think for Harriet um, grabbed a notepad and started taking notes and so, you know, what that compared to, you know, added to his other notes, added to the scenes that he, he had finished writing, all of that stuff was able to be handed to Brandon. And Brandon was like, okay. Mm -hmm. um, they were trying to figure out the timelines because Jim kind of kept it all in his head. And Brandon is a plotter. It's very much a, yeah. a, a plotter. And they all were. And they were like, we don't really know how all of this stuff fits together. And so they were digging through his computer and they found a, uh, in a file called timeline or something like that. And so even in the books, 
things, it's not all chronological. It's this scene happens and then this scene happens and then, okay, this scene in a later book now happens, et cetera. And so it's Mm -hmm. all kind of chopped up a little bit. And so they were really excited. They were like, this is going to be great. He's going to kind of give us an idea of all the timelines. They open it and it's blank. And (laughs) because he just kind of saw it, you know, he had been obviously yeah. thinking about this for decades by that point. And so it was like, Oh, I, I know how, gonna, how it's going to work. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. And that, you know, I think that's a, a good support in Rafe's favor. Rafe being the showrunner mm-hmm. um, for those who don't know that he has sort of mixed up the timeline that we see in the books a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I think we're going to see even more of that in season two. Yeah. Um, but let's go back real quick to Perrin because yes. of all the characters who whose backgrounds were changed, Perrin's, in my opinion, is the most yeah. significant. Yeah. And it's one that Brandon actually advised against. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was one of the few uh, suggestions, according to Brandon, that he made that was just rejected. Mm-hmm. <laughs> outright and that he still wasn't really sure if it was the right choice for that to be rejected um i think it makes a lot of sense because of what perrin is going to be going through soon yeah it it gives a much better explanation than well he's kind of sensitive when it comes to women or it's mm. kind of he he's really you know Uh, sensitive when it comes to his romantic partners now we know we know why the struggle is coming for the axe versus the hammer we know why he is so protective of his uh of his wife to be um we understand a lot more of this so i i actually think it's one of the better changes um i think i understand why brandon would have pushed against it but, you know, keep in mind, they well, also... Well, he does explain why, so I'll go into that okay. in a second. But go ahead and, and finish what you were... Yeah, they also have another super fan helping them day to day, Sarah, uh, Sarah Nak- Nak- Nakamura, who... Yes, yeah, is, Brandon mentioned her. Yeah, is, is brilliant. Like, she knows, she really knows her stuff. Um, and in fact, if I remember correctly, she played... They did a short of Eye of the World or something. And she played Moraine. And um, oh. so um, apparently she was hiding a pregnancy at the time. So as soon as they were done, she was like, okay, we're done. Like, well, yeah, no, we're, are we done, done? Are we, there's not going to be any pickups <laughs> because I'm pregnant and we need to do this quick <laughs> um, <laughs> is my understanding. But then again, that's probably third person story by this point. But yeah. yeah, Sarah, Sarah knows her stuff. She used to be at Jordan Con regularly. Um, and so mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I put a lot of um, faith in what Brandon has to say about it. I put a lot into what Sarah has to say about it as well. Mm-hmm. And then I think Rafe is a good storyteller. So I. Yeah. And from what I understand is, is he was a fan yeah. originally too, Yeah, that he didn't just take on this project because it's who Amazon wanted to choose that. Yeah. This is actually a passion project for him. Yeah. Perrin's wife and that incident in the first episode is really interesting. Yeah. It serves to condense the timeline a bit and condense some of this character development. Yeah. Because Perrin and Matt especially take a few books to really yeah. grow into interesting characters. Yeah. And that needs to be sped up yeah. for, for a TV series. Yeah. Originally, Perrin's traumatic moment happens with the Children of the Light, and he goes into this sort of barbarian-like rage, and and that's where this inner conflict begins of this, I'm a violent, dangerous person, yeah. but I don't want to be. And moving that into the first episode, I think was a, exactly what needed to happen for the show. Brandon, what he wanted instead of a wife and accidentally killing his wife was for it to not be someone quite so close to him and for it to be an injury instead of Mm -hmm. a death. So his idea was that he would injure the blacksmith that he works for inadvertently. I think that in the end, it was just a creative difference of opinion. Yeah. But Brandon's concern was that 
with that level of trauma, parents shouldn't even be able to function for the rest of the series. Um, and it was maybe too intense mm -hmm. from the get-go. And I can see that for sure. But when I was watching it, and I was watching it without knowing this is why they made that decision or what went into it and what Brandon had consulted them on, I felt like the character growth did make sense to me. And yeah. because this is a, a more dark um, adaptation of the series, I felt like it worked and it fit for the trauma to be that intense. And, you know, there's the question of how much payoff there was in that character arc in the final episodes, but that's a whole other can of worms that we can. <laughs> well, there's, there's also the stuff, again, there's the stuff that's going to be coming up over the next season, mm -hmm. two, three, four, five. And yeah. Then, you know, yeah. if he's chasing her around all over the place, then it's going to be, mm -hmm. you know, there's entire sections of novels where people are just like, this was, this was terrible. It was just Perrin running around looking for her or, mm -hmm. you know, hunting them down or whatever. And, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of mixed opinions in, in the wheel of time community and have been for decades. Um, I've been a member of Tarvalon.net for, I don't know, 17, 18 years or something now. And there's a library on the website, on the forums. And if Robert Jordan didn't want to dig through his notes, he would go to that library mm -hmm. because he knew it was going to be right. You know, there are people there who know their stuff at every bit as well as, you know, any of the other sites like Dragon Mount, which is also excellent. The point is that people who absolutely adore and love these have been fighting about it mm -hmm. for for decades already, you know, before the show was even announced. So yeah, it's not new. Yeah, no. <laughs> No, not at all. There were some things that I didn't really care for. I, you know, I think that the 10th episode is kind of the weakest. Yeah, uh, a lot of people would agree with that. Yeah. The one thing that I would say I absolutely love is Rafe did a better job of showing how incredibly desperate Moraine is compared to what Jordan wrote down. Yeah. I think. And there's a lot um, more yeah. of Moraine. Like, we don't really get Moraine's perspective in the first book. And she's not even, like, hardly in the second book at all. Um, yeah. She only comes in at the very end and very briefly. But we get Moraine's journey. And we don't... Yeah. In the book, it's just you're following Perrin and Egwene. And then you're following Rand and Matt. And you yeah. don't know what Moraine's doing in that time period yeah. until she connects back with those two groups. And I, I really liked getting some of her story and perspective added into there. Yeah. I, what I like is it shows how just incredibly desperate she is to get this to work. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, if she doesn't, she knows the world is going to be consumed by, by the Dark One. And even in the novel, the plan is to get to figure out which one is the dragon to get him to the eye of the world yep. and then yeet him at the eye of the world. That's it. Mm -hmm. That's the whole plan. But then at the and end of episode 10, we get that moment with her where she's like, I think this was the first battle, not the yeah. last. Yeah. And yeah. knowing her intimately throughout the series makes that moment so much more meaningful and impactful. Yeah. I think my, my favorite part of that is Rand is in her lap. His head is in her lap. She's cradling him. And she has a knife to his throat. Mm -hmm. She will kill him if he makes the choice that doesn't protect the world. Mm -hmm. And she is incredibly desperate. Mm -hmm. Just, I wish I could think of another word because, you know, I'm a writer and that's what we should do. But no, I, it, it just describes exactly how incredibly invested in this she is in order to save the world. Mm -hmm. Like, I will kill this kid. This kid who very well might be the savior of our planet and our time, I will kill him rather than allow him to be co-opted by the dark. Mm -hmm. Well, because she knows about the history and how yeah. horrible it was the times that he did yeah. choose the dark yeah. in the different cycles of his life. That was something Robert Jordan talked about. He had mentioned something about a time, uh, a cycle of the wheel where the dragon was like, nah. The dragon reborn was like, oh, I'm not doing it. And so somebody else has to pick it up and do it instead. Mm. Um, and that, 
man, what a great idea for a story. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, the prophesied one is like, uh, uh-uh. uh. And so, you know, the prophesied one's like dad who's half crippled does it instead. Mm-hmm. And that was actually some of the original ideas for Rand was that he was going to be kind of a mix between Rand as the character, but more like um, Tam, his father in the show or the, in the series. He's war weary. He comes home. He's in his own way, already a complete and utter badass. But he comes home and he's like, I just want to be done. And then he gets sucked back into it all. So I think there was a lot of space to be, to, to play around with in the show and still be kind of true to some of the things that Jim had in his mind um, as he was doing this stuff. Yeah. So. And it, in the books, Rand rejects the idea of being the dragon mm-hmm. for a lot longer. Um, maybe not necessarily longer in time frame, but longer in page count in books. <laughs> yeah. Page count. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but in the, by the end of season one, he's embraced, like he's accepted. I am the dragon. And, um, that I think was necessary. They had to speed that up for that reason, because you could go in all these different directions and, they needed to make it clear to their audience by the end of season one what direction this was going in. Yeah, I, I think my biggest issue with the, the entire first season was he was like, I'm going to leave. Like, what? Mm-hmm. You know, people were like, Matt left. Matt would never leave. And I'm like, Matt leaves the group like three times. What are you talking about? He's always yeah. like, I'm done. I, I'm sick of this stuff. I'm, I'm out of here. Like, I'm not <laughs> responsible. I'm not an adult. What are you talking about? I'm gone. And he does that, what, two or three times? You know, so the fact that it happened, not to mention the practical issues of, you know, them having the actor, yeah, the issues leaving, with the actor, yeah. whatever, whatever those turn out to be. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, let's let's talk about that, because a lot of the issues that people have with those final two episodes can be traced back to this issue of COVID interrupted filming and then the actor who plays Matt mysteriously leaving the set. And it's interesting because you wonder, you know, how different those two episodes would have been if Matt had stuck around. And that was probably the original plan to have him stick around. Um, But the ripple effects that has like needing to channel to open the way gates, if, if the way gates opened the way they do in the books, they could easily just go back and get Matt and then drag him into the ways with them. So they had to create a reason why they couldn't go back for him. And, and that was like, Oh, we need to channel to use the way gates. Little details like that, that change from that, you know, one character having to sit out, but it does move up the timeline of, you know, Matt's own timeline because he then can start his journeys that, that he takes when he's separated from yeah. the group. And I think that's the direction they're going for season two yeah. is that he he's on his own separate journey doing some of those things that he does in the books yeah. later on. They don't have a choice. I mean, really, when it mm-hmm. comes down to it. And that's one of the things that people need to keep in mind when it comes to adaptations is sometimes there's contractual issues sometimes there's real life issues there's all kinds of other things that the showrunner or the the producer and director whomever they have to deal with that the writer and the writer's story did not have to deal with you know the entire yeah. world shut down for as two a writer years. we could still write right. but they couldn't film the same way yeah and and the writing had to be, I'm sure, rewritten a lot, This, the, those yeah. two episodes, because from what I understand is they didn't know that the actor who played Matt was going to be gone until they were thrown back into yeah. filming. And it was very sudden from what Brandon has said when they were able to come back yeah. to filming and really chaotic with trying to figure out how to make it work. Like, yeah, they had to... CGI a lot of scenes where there's a lot of people in one space little logistics like that that just make it that much harder and and in that process Brandon doesn't get the final 
scripts for those last two episodes until after they've mm-hmm. filmed them. So he can't consult on it and make suggestions. But, you know, it's it's Hollywood. You have a timeline. You have a deadline. Yeah. And Amazon was probably like, okay, we can film. Let's get filming yeah. wrapped up as soon as possible. Because it's yeah. money. Filming costs money. Every hour you spend, it costs money. I think people forget that these things are businesses. Yes, there's art to it. But even publishing, even writing is a business. You know, every author is you incorporated. So, Mm -hmm. you know, when when you're dealing with that kind of thing, people get fussy about it. Like, well, I can't believe they did this. Well, you know, they didn't have a choice to some extent. So, Mm -hmm. you know, roll with it. Exactly. And I don't want to speak for all fans, but I think most fans would rather have the season renewed because it did well than have their version of what they think the adaptation should be, but then have it flop after the first season and and not get renewed. I see quotes like, you know, you know how to make an adaptation? You take a book and you make the thing exactly like the book and then you profit. And it's like, no, that's terrible. Like, (laughs) why would you do that? It doesn't Let, work. You know, let's let's look at words on a page as as time on the screen, and then Tolkien stuff adaptations would be awful, worse than they are. <laughs> You'd spent twenty minutes of just running Aragorn running yes. up a hill and just filming yeah. him running up a hill why for twenty minutes, and no one's gonna yeah, watch that. Why would you that? do that? And you know, this I'm yeah. not even diving into the Rings of Power. Let's just look at Lord of the Rings and and The Hobbit. Well, I mean, The yeah. Hobbit was a different issue entirely. The Hobbit is very whimsical, and that's almost impossible the, to do in, in visual form. Yeah, and the the Hobbit, I think, was the opposite issue. They they wanted to yeah. stretch it into three films, yeah. and and the book, The Hobbit, is just no. not no. not three no. film. It's not a three film book. You know, two. I think, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. two. I, especially sure. giving a whole not lot of three. attention to like the Battle of Five Armies, which would be in which you know. Mm-hmm. no matter what would be an incredible set piece but mm-hmm. hey you know they even made some big yeah. changes at there. that point they were they were trying to appeal to a very different audience than the original yeah. audience of the trilogy would have been because it had become over the years such a, a massive i mean a classic yeah. you know a staple in the the fantasy film and, industry. And one of the things that, you know, I think we should probably keep in mind is that even Tolkien knew that the tone was entirely different between the, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. And he asked, he asked the publisher, mm-hmm. should I go back and rewrite it? Write the, rewrite the Hobbit. And the publisher was like, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Just leave it. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sure well, he it. wrote the Hobbit was a story he made up for his kid and then wrote down after yeah. it was a children's story. Yeah. And then the Lord of the Rings trilogy yeah. wasn't originally supposed to be a children's story. Yeah. So there's a there's a big difference between yeah. those. I, but the the films you could tell they wanted to not be a children's story. They wanted to to yeah. make it more like the original trilogy. And I think films. I think what ended up happening was all the prep work that was done was done under Guillermo del Toro and then, you know, Peter Jackson had to actually work film with that that prep work. So if either Del Toro had been able to finish it or Peter Jackson had been able to do all of the pre-production work. Either one of them would have worked really well, but instead it was kind of the worst of both worlds. You know, Guillermo Del Toro does whimsical really well. You know, anybody who's watched Pan's Labyrinth Mm -hmm. is going to be like, oh yeah. But Peter Jackson does a very different style of of filmmaking. So, Mm -hmm. you know, again, another issue when we talk about adaptations like this, this person would be perfect the perfect showrunner for this well we can't get that person so you know mm-hmm. oh hey or we want to do a slightly different version of this we want to do a darker version of this and harriet always um mm-hmm. considered brandon's writing to be darker than jim's and yet the show is even yet darker than than brandon was at yeah absolutely. so you know there is there's definitely been that push for the last decade or so to do the dark and gritty stuff you know, look at the MCU compared to Marvel Comics. Um, most yeah. of the MCU is based on the Ultimates, which is an adaptation from about that started about twenty years ago, 
that was really dark and gritty you know um captain mm-hmm. america isn't a cat you know, isn't a, a a boy scout he's a special soldier a special operations soldier yeah etc cetera, etc cetera. so yeah you know. i think it's we've had a you know how the uh, mfa program does those um wireside mm-hmm. chats and there was one i can't remember who the guest was um but they talked about the darkening of media in their opinion how it reflects mm-hmm. the world that mm-hmm. we're in that a world that isn't as simple as it used to be a world where news is at our fingertips and we can have access to all the horrible things that are yeah. happening in the world we're not bubbled in from that stuff yeah. anymore and with that people want entertainment that explores those difficult things because it, I mean, as much as people say that fiction is an escape, it offers an opportunity to process. Yeah. And I think people don't even realize that that's what's happening, yeah. but we're processing real well, shit yeah. Yeah. as we're engaging in yeah. fiction. While, while it's definitely escapism as well, it's also commentary. Yeah. It's like the name of our podcast. It's the lies we tell in order to tell the truth or the lies we make in order to tell the truth or to tell truths. Mm-hmm. I guess is the better way of saying that. But yeah, yeah, yeah it's it's a big yeah. deal. I mean, the world of the 90s, the early 90s, the Berlin Wall had just fallen. The Soviet Union had just fallen apart. Everybody was incredibly optimistic about a lot of things. And then, you know, the world has changed, especially 21 years ago now. The, yeah. the fiction and, and the, the productions that were coming out the first couple of years after the 9-11 attacks were very different than a few years before. Um, Battlestar Galactica, mm-hmm. the, the 02-03 version, whatever it is, the, the one that turned into the, the sci-fi series, it was very much commentary on the world after 9-11. Yeah. So all of these things affect stuff. Mm-hmm. Contracts, actors... Uh, availability, the ability to do the special effects, everything like that, it's all got to get figured out. And so it's going to make Mm -hmm. the adaptation from book to screen very different. It has to, even from Mm -hmm. book to video game. And yeah, something Brandon said that I thought was very wise is you don't have to like a piece Mm -hmm. of art, but you have to accept that it's the artist's work. And it doesn't ruin the original yeah. art. The, the series doesn't ruin the books for you. You can go back yeah. and read the books. Um, but when you're complaining about these changes that are made, you know, you can't expect an artist to just produce something for a wide audience that is exactly what you think yeah. the art should look like. Yeah. It's just not how life works. Yeah. So, yeah, you you can choose to not like a lot of the decisions. And even Brandon didn't like some things. and. Um, there was no disparagement clause in his contract, so he's allowed to talk about that stuff and, and be brutally honest with it. But that doesn't mean that you have the right to disparage the artist. It's it's their work. It's, it's Rafe's baby. Yeah. Rafe and his team and the actors and this collaboration and... Yeah, you you can if you don't like it, just don't watch it and go back to reading the books. The books are still there for you. It it just makes me laugh that the people who would write fan fiction over like hundreds of pages of fan fiction are are often the ones that complain the loudest about some of these adaptations. And it's mm-hmm. like, hold on a second here. Do you not see the, the hypocrisy? Yeah. Or is it just a gatekeeping issue? Well, it's not the way I would have done it. Well, okay, but mm-hmm. you probably wouldn't have written the book. So, right. sorry. And you don't, you probably don't know squat about filmmaking either. A lot of those fans. Well, there's a whole lot of armchair generals out there, armchair quarterbacks now. <laughs> you know, they're yeah. like, well, it should have been done like this. Some of that, I mean, some of the commentary, again, some of the commentary started immediately, you know, much like with mm, Rings of Power. Mm-hmm. It was ethnicity of cast members and stuff you know there was a quote yeah they took my favorite character and made him a skinny black guy excuse me like what cool (laughs) what if that's a skinny black guy's favorite character and now he's represented yeah i don't think white people don't realize what it's like i mean even us yeah being white we don't realize what it's like 
to never see yourself represented yeah. in these things. It's the same issue with with the Little Mermaid. Like there's these little girls, little black girls who who see that the Little Mermaid is black, and the amount of joy yeah. that that brings. Yeah. Uh, and and you're you want to take that joy away because of mystical, fantastical creature. Yeah. Who has a different color skin? Well, and the irony of all ironies is the people. Um, who are saying things like, well, because it's a black character, I can't connect with it anymore. Well, now you understand the problem. Mm. <laughs> you know, representation <laughs> is a big deal. First of all, second of yeah. all, how can you not like, how do you not have empathy with another human being or another fantastical right. creature? We're humans. We will pack bond toasters. And yet somehow you can't connect with this character because it doesn't have the same skin tone as you or the gender mm -hmm. has swapped. I don't, yeah. I, I just don't, I admit, I don't understand it. Um, I don't, I don't either. So, I, I can't wrap my head around that. Yeah. And I have some friends who are now starting to realize that maybe for some projects, they're not necessarily the target demographic. Yes. Mm -hmm. Middle-aged white guys are not the only demographic. They're not the ones that movies are necessarily going to be made for all the time. Sorry. Yep. It hurts. Definitely not the little mermaid. No. Sorry, well, it's I'm, for a newer generation I'm that's so more accepting. I'm so excited about that. Like I saw, Me too. I saw The Little Mermaid when it was in the theaters, and I've loved it ever mm -hmm. since. And yet, I am so ridiculously excited about this because it's a new take on on the idea of the story. Yeah, I'm excited to yeah. see how that one will turn out. Yeah. Um, speaking of representation, um, I think this might end up being a two parter, but let's get this one, sure. this into the first part. Um, Moraine in the Almerland seat. Mm -hmm. A lot of people were pissed about that, including my brother-in-law who really ranted and and said some things about Brandon Sanderson too that I was like, jeez. Oh, but um, he was very upset about this relationship. But what I found out when I was watching Brandon's podcast about this is in canon, Moraine in the Almerland did have a relationship. Yeah. A romantic one, long before the beginning of the events yes. in the books. They were they were pillow friends, which was a, just a nice way of saying they they had sex pretty regularly. When they you were put, lovers. When you put a couple of hundred young, healthy people into into a group, they're going to figure out how to have sex, even if they're all the same gender. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, and it makes sense to me with their yeah. characters. Like I could see them being a compatible couple yeah and i just thought that was so interesting because that's something that ne i never heard come up when everyone was complaining about that and i obviously i've only read the first two books and i know a lot about the other ones because my husband's constantly talking about it and i don't mind the spoilers it's an old enough series now that yeah i'm just <laughs> yeah spoilers are out in the world but i mean he he has implied that there's things in the future books with their relationship with each other that lend itself really well to the fact that they've been yeah. lovers before yeah. um just the fact that they went into this the basically they went into the dream world in order to have this relationship was really interesting to me it was mm -hmm. like oh that's that's brilliant and yeah it, 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 most definitely how they would use these items if they could like people yeah yeah, people get kind of funny about that. Well, I'm I'm really sorry that your brother-in-law flipped out about that, but yeah, it's totally. <laughs> I mean, it's 100% in canon. Um, yeah, you know, there are gonna be, and I, it's funny to me that there's fans flipping out about that, yeah. not realizing that it is yeah. part of yeah. canon. There are people who just miss, like, missed entire sections of stuff. Of all of the weird arguments to have had, there was once one over tea. So. All through the books, they talk about, <laughs> and then they made tea. They boiled water for tea. They drank tea. They mm -hmm. did all this other stuff. And this guy on a forum was like, I, it was like, no, 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 they don't drink tea. I'm like, of course they drank tea. Like, what are you talking about? Why would they make it all the time? Then he's like, <laughs> well, they weren't drinking it. I'm like, what were they doing? Bathing in it? Like, how do you miss that? And if people can miss the fact that they drank tea, they can obviously selectively miss the fact that some yeah. of a lot of these characters have same sex relationships, whether they're 
romantic relationships or sexual relationships or whatever. Mm-hmm. They there are characters who happen to like the same sex, same gender. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure if Robert Jordan wrote those books today, it would be a lot less subtle. Yeah. Okay. Um, those things. It, it, but it, that's why, like with the film, they're going to make some of those things less subtle because we live in a different time when it's more acceptable yeah. for that and, to be explicit. And it wasn't really all that subtle back then, to be honest with you. Like if you if you kind of know what you're looking for, it wasn't mm-hmm. particularly subtle, but it wasn't. So maybe only subtle for, for someone who grows up thinking that those things are are wrong yeah and so and thinks that's obviously not what he meant or that he could never have meant that yeah definitely so yes um tea and and sex uh are apparently a really big deal in these books and Mm -hmm. people have completely and utterly missed it (laughs) oh man yeah so uh sorry for the spoilers everybody but if you read a part in that series where somebody talks about a pillow friend in the tower it means they were having sleepovers and bang it oh yeah it's it's like the netflix of chill and netflix and chill of the wheel of time series yeah Yeah. pillow friends um i loved that they included that relationship even before i knew it was canon i loved it because going back to the idea that the heart and soul of the wheel of time is this political intrigue. Mm-hmm. It adds so much to the politics of the yeah. white tower when oh, they're yeah. together in secret and having that moment where the Amarland has to exile Moraine. Yeah. Just brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. yeah it, and I think definitely doesn't stray from the soul of no. the wheel of time. No, I, I think they did a really good job with that. Um, and again, I think I think in a lot of cases, anybody who doesn't see it just doesn't want to. Um, so I think for part two, we'll get into season two, um, dive into this uh, teaser that's been released and get into what we predict okay. will be happening. And then cliffhanger. I'll make a really weird (laughs) confession. A really weird confession. I love it. This has been We're Lying, But That's Okay. Big thanks to our listeners for your support. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review. Thank you to our one-man production and tech support team, Max Garrity, for making this podcast possible.